welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. Sorry for a bit of a delay. Work's been ramping up recently, and I've been trying to figure out a time in between to at least get the last of these items off of my list. Considering that I've been going on a bit of a film-watching frenzy in the midst of Oscar season, for better or worse, and at least there's one good thing to be coming out of that, considering that I do believe that everything, everywhere, all at once, without a shadow of a doubt, deserved nearly every single one of its wins. Seven out of eleven in terms of Oscars to nominations that they were able to get, which is, to me, absolutely crazy to that point. I mean, a little shaky on the nomination for Jamie Lee Curtis, since I do believe that Stephanie Hsu was probably the one that should have won Best Supporting Actress, but, yeah, you know, that's not necessarily too bad of a piece, considering that it seemed like everybody inside of that cast and crew was absolutely overjoyed to see the amount of success that they were able to get through inside of this anime <laughs> anime award season. Now, I mean, in terms of the award season, I'm not necessarily surprised that uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio was able to go through and win Best Animated Feature. Personally, like I said before, Puss in Boots was probably my favorite of the bunch, and then overall my favorite animated film of last year period was probably Inuo, but honestly, Pinocchio was far and beyond more than I would have expected for anything coming out of like that kind of story, especially with the quote-unquote Pinocchio fatigue that we were able to feel inside of 2022, which is kind of crazy of any title for that to go, but eh, what can you do? Everything's out of the way now, so at least I'll be able to go through and focus on a couple more things that are more animated than not. And considering that, probably one of the biggest surprises and one of the set of sentences that I never would have been able to expect to be put in the same strain would have been that there was a crowdfunded anime based on H.P. Lovecraft's Mountains of Madness, where it's essentially climbing a mountain of terror against horrifically high odds and Cthulhu monsters galore, which is just so ridiculous in the sense that it's just mountain climbing and anime, well, not anime-style monsters, but then just Lovecraftian horror pieces that are going to be climbing the mountains just as much as our characters are. So it's just so... It, it seems like it's right up my alley where you've got mountain climbing and monster killing all in the same bid, but I don't know, only time will tell to kind of see how this is going to go, but off... Just the idea alone it is going to be getting me more than enough invested for me to go in now that it's in the middle of production. And on top of movies that you're probably going to go through and see this year, as this is a yearly reminder, there is going to be a Ghibli Fest lined up at the majority of movie theaters lining up across North America for another year. And in terms of 2023, we're going to be getting stuff like My Neighbor Totoro again at the top, Ponyo, and The Wind Rises. But you do already have the mainstays, you've got Howl's Moving Castle, you've got Princess Mononoke, you've got Spirited Away, you've got all the mainstays for the rest of this. I'm still going to continuously tell people to say, hey, go watch Porco Rosso, it is easily one of the, not necessarily the most underrated films inside of uh, Ghibli's catalog, but it is easily my favorite, so I'm going to try and shill that film as many opportunities as I can, and that's going to be screening on August 20th and 22nd. Basically, all of these films are going to be screening between March 25th and November 1st, so you'll have the opportunity to see all 10 of these films throughout the course of the year, so whenever you have the opportunity to go and check the schedule at your local theater, honestly, go and give them a watch. And to top this off in terms of at least shows that I'm legitimately interested to see how they're going to be turning out this year, we've got the director for Freyr and Beyond Journey's End, as well as a premiere date, which in this case is going to be the fall of this year, as well as it being directed by Keiichi Rosato, who is lining up at Madhouse and is 
fresh off their success of Bochi the Rock. It's being done by Madhouse. It is a straight-up fantasy show. Honestly, one of the best manga that I'm currently reading at this point. And to top it all off, it's going to be the next work being done by the Bochi the Rock director. I'm not, I'm not going to overhype this. All I know is that I'm just going to accept the fact that this show is in really good hands. It is a phenomenal source that they're going to be adapting. And to top it all off, there are more than enough competent people that are going through to be able to produce this show with the amount of passion that I would imagine seeing them do the same thing that they did with Bochi the Rock. I mean, color me excited. And I guess one of the most recent uh, pieces that ended up coming out, where it's not necessarily something that's, like, too important to my current anime fandom, but as the child in me that ended up watching Ultimate Muscle back on the 4Kids Saturday morning block, uh, the Kanikuan franchise is going to be getting a new anime for its 40th anniversary, which in this case, it was localized to Ultimate Muscle in North America back in the 2000s. I, t I remember... Almost next to nothing about this show, the only two things I remember are, like, some of the throwaway lines inside of the initial opening, where it's just, He could really save the universe if he only had some guts. Ultimate muscle. And it just continuously goes through and gets stuck in your head. And even though it's not going to be too much of an important thing to at least prioritize leading into the future, I'm still kind of <laughs> curious to see how the rest of that is going to go, considering that... I would have never expected this to get any new content ever, so, I mean, there you go. Now, before I end up going through the majority of the topics that I've lined up for this episode, I guess I do want to at least touch on the most recent HBO mega-hit that's been lining up and just recently had its season finale, which is The Last of Us. And it's a really interesting kind of piece of media for me, considering that I understand that it's been 10 years since the game came out, and it's something that I only recently watched a video essay summarizing the majority of the two games, but even before that essay came out last year, I'd been drip-fed bits and pieces of information about the game, considering that I had never played it before. I had seen bits and pieces of the major events that were going to be lining through the first season. I was just curious as to how much they would go through, considering that at least the game itself takes a couple of dozens of hours, so I didn't know how they were going to condense that into one season. In this case, nine, but at least for the one, the first season that we've been given and the second season that has already been announced, how they were able to condense it, the first game, into one season, they did a pretty impressive job. Even though I didn't play it, it definitely felt like the last third of the series was really just blitzing along the last bit of it so the pacing was great in the first half and then was a little rushed I felt like in the last half but regardless the quality of the characters and the writing and the world and everything that this kind of show is able to give inside the amount of time that it took for people to fall in love with this even though trepidation was definitely key we knew that this was written and show ran by Craig Mazin, which the last time he was able to do that for television was for HBO's miniseries Chernobyl, which is also a phenomenal series. Everybody should go check that out if you are even remotely interested in not necessarily the mysteries, but the history around that kind of chaotic event that changed the landscape of a good part of the continent, then I would definitely go back and recommend giving this a watch, considering that the Last of Us definitely has that same, not necessarily documentary style of editing and directing, but it just has a really good way 
of bringing you into that world, not necessarily with the kind of logic that it operates on to tell us how this kind of planet-spanning event would occur, but in a way that just puts you right into the middle of the chaos and the despair and the hopelessness that you are able to go through and engage with and experience for the rest of this. So I'm definitely giving huge props to both Craig and Neil Druckmann, who was the one of the head writers and creatives of The Last of Us game back in 2013. They all did a phenomenal job. Pedro Pascal is just easily one of the best portrayals of that kind of father character that I've seen in all of fiction. I mean, Joel, he plays Joel to such a phenomenal degree, where he is such a kind but selfish man, and even though the loss that he goes through inside of this show, the fact that he's still able to truck on is definitely more than enough of akin to the forever enduring bit of the human spirit. But honestly, the one who just easily steals the show is fucking Bella Ramsey. I mean, she was... Every single time that she was on an episode of Game of Thrones, it was consistently... Either something would always come up where it's just she would give the dirtiest stink eye to anybody inside of the show that shared a room with her. And she always had, like, that consistent kind of stoicism and rebellious spirit that you would be able to go through the character. Which is kind of funny in the sense that uh, both her and Pedro Pascal were both in Game of Thrones. It's just that Pedro was only around for a season and she was like scattered through three different seasons, but like very, with very, very little screen time. Like, even though she had more seasons than Pedro, Pedro like easily had more screen time throughout the rest of it. So it was kind of interesting to see that they were both on the same show, just never in the same episode and never a part of the same cast to be able to be on the production together. And so it was kind of interesting to see where it's like, okay, so they both showed their stuff inside of Game of Thrones, both to varying degrees. And by varying degrees, one wasn't necessarily better than the other because they were both phenomenal actors inside of the roles that they were able to play. Like, they were huge bright spots inside of the show. It's just that for me, the only other time that I remember even seeing Pedro Pascal would have just been in The Mandalorian because I hadn't watched Narcos because I knew that he had, at least after the fact, that he had the majority of the role down pat since he's been able to play that kind of imposing figure to a really good degree. I guess the only other movie that I remember seeing him was in the Kingsman sequel, but that was basically it. That's all I knew about him, and he does a phenomenal job portraying Joel. And then I guess Bella Ramsey, the only other time I'd ever seen her before was in Game of Thrones, and so they both really knocked it out of the park. I really enjoyed seeing their dichotomy and their relationship grow over the course of the series and they're just a really phenomenal duo like easily some of the best character banter and just engagements that you've seen inside of like a main cast in a long time i just really really enjoyed seeing them on screen and i really really enjoyed this season overall i would definitely recommend giving this a watch if you haven't already considering that it is definitely doing numbers and like for a good reason i would be remiss just to not mention it at all considering that it was just a phenomenal television series depressing sure but still a phenomenal watch and now to at least focus on the pieces of media that i was just kind of going through on a whim it was it was something that i decided i wanted to do after i ended up watching uh dune considering that Denis Villeneuve he's just easily become one of my favorite modern filmmakers just period 
because very rarely do I come across a director or a showrunner or anything that can basically make lightning strike twice regardless of the kind of content that they either decide to improvise through originality or adapt to another degree. And seeing him cover all of those bases at once going through at least the majority of his catalog was just like, okay, yeah, no, this this guy has it. I'm really excited to see what he's going to be able to do next, especially with all of his future projects, especially with Dune Part 2 that is going to be coming out later this year. Also, he's one of the only Canadian filmmakers that I can basically just count on my hand, so, like, that's definitely a plus. But in this case, I was curious about what he was... Uh, not necessarily capable of, because I already knew he was a phenomenal filmmaker, a director, a writer, basically just everything that you'd be able to find inside of somebody like that, but then also kind of what he, you know, what he did initially, like how was he in the early works before he ended up helming such huge productions like Blade Runner 2049 and essentially readapting the Dune books. And I didn't end up going through to watch August 32nd on Earth or Maelstrom, even though those were his two directorial debuts, considering that the majority of that is kind of far in a way. You can see bits and pieces of those films, uh, like, make his way into kind of his iconic style leading into the rest of his catalog, but not a lot of the craziness and the kinetic energy is essentially transitioned into his later works. Uh, considering that the first time I had heard of the Polytechnique Massacre was basically through reading up on the history of the Tragically Hips, uh, one of the EPs that they never did end up putting out, but in this case through Saskadelphia. And so this was on a song based just called Montreal, going through bits and pieces of this school shooting that essentially was a horrific event for misogyny and anti-feminism. It was something that was not necessarily shot in a more directorial style, but something that does jump around in time depending on the character that you're focusing on, and never necessarily leaving you with any kind of just safety or just any kind of calm. Because you know what's going to be leading into it, you just want to know if there's going to be any hope to be found or anything that can be done for the people who were even able to survive. Even after taking a break for 10 years inside of his film career, I think the only good thing that ever came out of that horrific event was the fact that he was able to go through and display the horrific event with such reverence and more, and have it more grounded, not especially why they sh he ended up shooting in black and white, considering that he didn't want to essentially stylize or glorify the violence that was on display. It was just horrific and should never be even displayed with an ounce of flair. It's just dark and cold and hopeless, especially when you're inside of a scenario like that. So hats off to him for emulating that kind of hopelessness inside of this world. And it doesn't necessarily get any <laughs> any brighter for that, especially when it comes to Incendius. It's just, there's definitely a common thread where there is flickers of hope inside of a bleak, nihilistic, and just completely chaotic world wherever he decides to point his camera. It's just not necessarily something that ever, it never tries to make you comfortable, it never tries to get you to enjoy the experience that you're going through you are just sitting and experiencing the movie regardless of the tone and what regardless of the expectations that you're going into and even though incendia is just has 
flickers of humanity. It is lost inside what is mostly just a horrific goose chase that leads to an even worse off conclusion than you could have ever imagined. And so it's as his repertoire goes on, you start to see increments of positivity coming through the majority of his work. But honestly, not a, not a lot, and especially not inside of Prisoners. Prisoners was probably the biggest surprise outside of his catalog that I decided to go back and watch through, because if there is tension and suspense and stress that can be condensed into one film and keep that atmosphere and that feeling for the entire one time of the film, it is Prisoners. You get five minutes of calm, five minutes of setup, and then the next two hours is just nothing but nihilism stress and just sitting there being uncomfortable. But in, it's hard to put it, the best kind of uncomfortable because you know you're on edge and you're just trying to see what essentially is going to be pushing these characters to the next end of a degree to try and find the ending that you want, but... It, the movie never lets you get that easily. It's just always keeping you in suspense, always throwing tiny pieces of information that do nothing but anger and stress you out even more, regardless of the way that it's going through. And it's definitely something that is so consistent inside of almost all of Denis's works, is that your main character is going to suffer. And they are going to be stressed, and they are going to be high-strung, and they are going to be pushed to their outer limits of their sanity to see how well they do under pressure, and how they're going to be able to either maintain their beliefs, their rules, their status quo, and their individuality, or is it going to crumble? And are they going to be ever able to recover from that? And it's, it was definitely one of the best pieces of that film, in the sense that you know and you understand the lengths that these people are trying to go to in order to get their daughters back, and you understand it, and you want these actions to be rewarded with some kind of release from the stress and the horrifying aspects of every single scenario that you're put into, and it just never gives that to you easily. It never does. So it's just, I don't know, Prisoners would probably be like one of the biggest recommendations outside of his biggest blockbusters that I would have to give to people because it keeps you teetering on that fine line hoping that something against all odds is actually going to give and have some kind of positivity happen inside of a world that seems like it's devoid of any. And then at least outside of that, Enemy, instead of it being, instead of being prisoners, external, like, one-on-one -on -one conflicts, Enemy is just a conflict that is within oneself. And it's something that is definitely just running itself into the ground in a, in a constant loop, and the fear of repetition is definitely a prominent theme inside of this film. I do appreciate the themes and the symbolism inside of this, especially dealing with the spiders and how that essentially catches not only the main character inside of a web and something that he's not able to escape from no matter how hard he tries, but something that also just keeps us strung and invested and trying to figure out why this is why this is happening. What is the point? What is the end game here for essentially what Jake Gyllenhaal meets as this doppelganger of himself? And so it's just incredibly difficult to try and figure this out 
through the lens of something that's just happening inside of his own head and how it's supposed to be at least resolved to some kind of a degree and if the choice that is the choices that are made inside of this film are going to even matter in the end and i definitely have to give it to jake Hall, considering that he was a really good high strung <laughs> stressed private detective inside of prisoners and then he does a phenomenal job trying to ride the line of being either faithful or despondent towards the one relationship in his life that matters and so i definitely it's Enemy is something that is more of a slow burn and it doesn't really give you any kind of satisfaction like any of the other films do. So it's it's not the most enjoyable watch, but if you're really curious to see how to blend and meld in themes inside of your work, Enemy is definitely a good uh, item to add to the list. Although, if there was one film that I definitely was expecting more of compared to anything else inside of his catalog... Sicario would probably be the one, considering that all I'd heard from this film is that, you know, there's the border crossing scene, and then it is a really dark look into the cartel and how the majority of the borders that need to be crossed in order to have some side of order within the chaos leads itself into it. But it was definitely one where the scene happens, I don't feel as much, and I will admit I was spoiled at the end, like towards the end of this movie. And kind of seeing it reach that conclusion didn't necessarily give me any kind of satisfaction. Which, of course, it's not supposed to do that. But even just reading into everything else that happens in this movie, the only consistent through line is that, it, like, very much so, that the main character in almost every single one of his works just gets thrown through the meat grinder, have their rules, their abilities, and just their sanity tested throughout almost every single scenario that they're put through regardless of what everybody else thinks and regardless of how they're going to be cared of by just anybody else in the cast or the crew, not necessarily the crew but just any other character that can just give them a shoulder to lean on because sometimes they do sometimes they don't and sometimes the characters themselves have to go through on this horrific journey alone and have to tag along with people that are only motivated by their self-interest and trying to get their job done regardless of the consequences and the lasting trauma that happens to any of the other characters. I just don't think that... <laughs> I'm glad I didn't watch the Sicario sequel because don't go into that thinking it's going to be like the same movie as of the rest of it, as I've been told, considering that it's not the same director, it's not the same team. All you have is just Benicio Del Toro. Like, that's it. Like, he's the, he's the only consistent through line through the rest of this, and even his good acting is not able to save whatever script that film had going for it. And so I guess we finally get to the one of the only optimistic films inside of his bunch, and that would just go to Arrival. And Arrival was definitely something where I, I'm kind of glad that I ended up speeding this up, because it is essentially just a film about language and communication, and even if we had the words to, or the ways to communicate and explain to others, would that even be enough in the end to advert conflict and an ending an ending in disaster? It's an incredibly slow movie to watch considering how it's basically step-by-step step that has to be restrained by rules, and the only way that you can step forward to try and make any breakthroughs in communication is breaking the rules that have been set to try and figure out a way for people to essentially go through and have the opportunity to speak with one another, regardless of the species and regardless of those that are involved. He does do a phenomenal job 
with the film's relationship with time and how they are able to edit this where you do believe that it's coming from a different perspective and a different way when or where and when the film takes place but how it's able to do that and incorporate that into the story and to show how big of an impact this kind of communication gives it does throw a lot of good ideas and some kind of hope and even though the choices that have to be made inside this film are tough and aggravating and will normally end in tragedy do you still make those choices even though you know and so it's a very interesting way to at least look through that and how the movie essentially relates the characters and how it relates the language to the overall plot of the story and so it honestly Probably not as big of a surprise as Prisoners, but I still do, I did really enjoy Arrival and how it's able to come to its own conclusions on how important language and communication is in the face of conflict and danger. And so now we get to Blade Runner 2049, which was the first of his films that I ended up watching. And I remember this back when I was in uni, and Blade Runner was a doubleheader that I ended up watching, uh, where the first movie I watched uh, in the middle of the afternoon was Thor Ragnarok, and that was a really pleasant surprise, and I was ec ecstatic going through and having the opportunity to watch that because it was a hilarious romp. Taika Waititi was just a phenomenal choice to, like, inject new life into the Thor franchise, and he was a really fun and engaging director, and all the banter was there, and it's easily, like, one of the best uh, Marvel superhero films that has ever been made. And then I got to follow it up with Blade Runner 2049, which is probably... <clears throat> I've only done, like, a double or triple header three times, and so... This was probably, these two movies back-to-back -back were easily the best of the three experiences that I had, because you end up going with the kind of, you know, dynamic, quippy, fast banter, and just overall large amounts of dynamic movement and color from Thor Ragnarok, and then you get uh, Blade Runner 2049. I almost called it Cyberpunk. Because, I don't know, Edge Runners has definitely been running around rampant in my head without rent, without not without rent, but just running through my head rent-free since I've been getting a couple of buddies to watch it. But Blade Runner 2049 was, I, I still think, is easily my favorite work of Denis by far. What he's able to accomplish with not only the tone and the story structure and how just he's able to take something that was already so influential and just an icon of cinema, and then not only give his own spin, but to honestly build on that world and take it into new directions that I never would have expected at all the cyberpunk genre to take, because it does still share resemblances and how it interacts with other cyberpunk works, like, say, Ghost in the Shell, but how it's able to, even inside of a genre of film that has been running through media for decades now the fact that it's i mean it is cyberpunk you can there are endless amounts of ideas that you can go and stem through this just one topic and make it more than enough interesting and ryan gosling was just phenomenal inside of this film for sure he brings not necessarily a kind of energy because he's very monotone and he is very stoic and he's very just straight-laced as K inside of this film, but how 
the film is able to drag him through the ringer and just see what the plot and what the revelations and what the story is able to give him. And even at the end of the day, he's still able to, regardless of his programming, move forward and not be held by anybody except himself. And yes, I do. <laughs> it's because it's a sequel. Yes, people can watch it first if they want, but it's like, no, I would definitely recommend you going to watch the original Blade Runner, even the director's cut, considering that it actually does give you pieces of information that are very important, especially when it comes to the revelations inside of this film. I really did enjoy the original Blade Runner, considering how it's able to still take that kind of world and that kind of set and environment and still breathe some kind of life into it. But yes, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Blade Runner 2049 is just my favorite work of his by far, and I'm hoping that he can eclipse that with the next few parts of Dune that he is going to be able to create, and I'm really curious to see how that's going to be lining up. And then, speaking of Dune, um, easily one of the best theater experiences I've had, period, especially with IMAX. Like, Dune was one of the first films that I ended up going back into theaters to watch in the middle of the pandemic back in 2021. It, like, you could not experience this the same way inside of just your own living room and trying, because it's, like, nice, it's comfy, you have the opportunity to control the environment, but just the, uh, the vibrations of the speakers that you are able to feel inside of that theater, especially whenever the voice is used, is just mystifying and intoxicating it was so it like it felt good in the best possible theater experience way everybody just kept saying where it's just i i had no idea that it was already quote-unquote adapted you know way back with patrick stewart and like what they were able to accomplish with uh the limited visual effects that they had back in the day so thanks to corridor digital for at least shining a bit of light on that but yeah no the the introduction, and especially the balls on this man, where it's like, understandably, part two was probably almost already, like, a good way through into production, but the way he just starts Dune with just, oh yeah, no, part one, and it's just, damn, so how how much are they going to be able to give this man, even though he's like, yeah, fuck you, I'm producing this, this is gonna go for whether we want it or not. I don't care how successful or how just abysmal it does at the box office, we are continuing and I'm going to adapt this story. And so he does a phenomenal job leading us into this world. The soundtrack was just absolutely phenomenal. Like, you know when Hans Zimmer is behind the podium, then you know that those bass... You know that when Hans Zimmer is behind the podium, you know whichever compositions he's going to be throwing out at the screen is just going to hit you to your very core. He is a phenomenal artist whenever it comes to composing the pieces that he's able to do in almost every single project he's involved with. He is fucking nuts. But to top that all off, just the first the fact that this is only the first part of what is going to be a greater scale on the planet as well as a greater conflict. I am really curious to see how the rest of this is going to go. I still haven't seen, like, of course, I haven't read any of the books. Like, what is reading? There is only visual media, haha. Um, but seeing how he was able to adapt this and just give it that kind of scale, 
especially in the cities, in the deserts, in the sea, well, in this case, the Sea of Sands, just so I know that I'm repeating myself, how he is able to bring this world to life, especially with how he's going to be setting up his characters where, like most, even though it is an adaptation, one that goes through the ringer, one that is going to be consistently having to overcome every obstacle that is going to be greater than the last it is honestly just a crazy kind of adventure that you don't necessarily get to see anywhere else and also something that is you don't necessarily get to see too often you get a son mother duo that is going through the majority of the conflicts and the majority of the sets inside of this film where it's just like the mom and the son they are the they are the duo that goes to kick ass inside the majority of the conflict and I really love how derelict and dim the Harkonnens live inside of it, so you can definitely understand <laughs> like how chaotic and warmongering they are in the midst of it. Which, like, this is also a ridiculously star-studded cast. Like, that was probably the biggest surprise to me, where it's like, oh, you know, I've, you know, I've seen Josh Brolin, I've seen, you know, Jason Momoa, but it's like, all right, we're just going to throw in Javier Bardem, we're going to throw in Zendaya, we're going to go throw in David Bautista, we're going to go throw in Stellan Skarsgård, we're going to throw in Oscar Isaac, we're going to throw in Rebecca Ferguson, and it's just like, it is crazy how many people that Denis has been able to go through and incorporate into his adaptation and into his world, and it's just a ridiculous ridiculously star-studded cast for something that you never would have imagined to have a second chance in the cinemas and honestly i can't wait to see what he's going to be continuing on with this story leading through dune part two inside of november <sighs> but yeah denny he is like i said before he is easily one of my favorite modern filmmakers to this day i'm really curious to see what projects he's going to be going through in the future especially with what he's going to be doing once he has completed his love letter to dune at the end of the day if i had to give my top three it would still probably be prisoners then it would be dune and then it would be cyberpunk uh, 2049 even though almost every single piece of his catalog has something to offer i would definitely give those three a recommendation if you're looking for you know entryways into his catalog but regardless i'm really glad to see that there are still canadian filmmakers out there that are going to be given the chance to helm these major projects leading and going forward and i honestly can't wait to see what he does next so happy saint patty's day cheers have a good one Thank you.